What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am back again with Michael Pina of SB Nation on the other line. Michael, this is a very, very special week in the NBA. Of course, I'm describing the return of Zion Williamson. It is slated for Wednesday night against the San Antonio Spurs in New Orleans. Now, of course, Zion Williamson was the number one pick of the 2019 NBA draft, one of the most hyped draft prospects of the decade, right up there, uh, I would say, uh, you know, with with any of them. He was uh, out sidelined for basically the first three months of the season after undergoing minor knee surgery. He looked great in the preseason uh, for New Orleans, but his absence affected everything from the NBA's TV ratings, from the New Orleans Hornets' uh, playoff hopes, uh, and of course, the Rookie of the Year race as well. I think the timing here of his return is fascinating because you've got John Morant in Memphis as the runaway, you know, rookie of the year favorite, uh, the number two pick. You've got New Orleans getting incredible play from Brandon Ingram, especially lately, who's making an all-star case. And and actually, you made the all-star case for Brandon Ingram uh, on our last episode. Uh, And then you've got the Pelicans, of course, trying to push into the playoffs with a wide open uh, race for the number eight seed and and Zion potentially being a gigantic X factor uh, in that conversation. So there are so many layers to this potential return. But of course, the most important layer is we all just like gawking at Zion and watching him play basketball. I mean, the guy is an incredible athlete, uh, incredible heart, incredible motor, um, all of the intangibles, and we've just been forced to wait and wait and wait and wait. And finally, Michael, it seems like the wait is over. So I'm going to throw to you the million-dollar question. On Wednesday night, what do you expect to see from Zion Williamson, and how would we characterize it as a successful debut? Because if he goes out there and has six points – I know I'm going to see people saying, oh, bust, and all that annoying stuff. So what's the bar for Zion on Wednesday night, and what do you want to see? Yeah, I think the bar is it's understandably high. He's been compared to LeBron James and Blake Griffin and some of the better number one overall picks in recent memory. In the preseason, he kind of elevated that bar, averaging 24 points, shooting 71% from the floor in four games. Uh, in just 27 minutes. So he was just historically great around the basket in particular. He was super explosive. NBA defenses could not stop him. Uh, For me, like, I'm just, I have a lot of questions about how he'll do, who he'll play with. Uh, You know, I'm really interested to see how he'll coexist with Brandon Ingram, who, by the way, scored 49 points uh, a day after I made that all-star prediction, which you you failed to note in the introduction, but I'll I'll do you the favor right now. Um, And, you know, will he close if if it's in a tight game? Will he shoot a three or even take any jump shots? Um, I really want to see how defenses will defend him. You know, if they switch on a pick and roll, is he just going to bully... The, the mismatch and get to the to the free throw line or, or finish at the basket. There's just a lot of questions. I can't wait to see him. This is one of the most highly anticipated debuts uh, in recent memory, if ever. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, when we're looking at like San Antonio's personnel, I think it's actually a, a really interesting window to uh, just kind of, you know, imagine or prognosticate what Zion's going to do because it's guys like Jakob Pertl, LaMarcus Aldridge, Trey Lyles. I mean, they don't have really anyone in the same vicinity from a body type perspective as Zion Williamson, right? Like, those guys are athletic in their own way. Certainly, they're long, um, you know, and, uh, you know, fairly mobile, I guess, positionally. 
but it's going to be a stark contrast when he's on the court against sort of any of those guys that they've got in their front line. And what we saw during the preseason was Zion was really able to exert his will even against top shelf defenders. Like he went right into Rudy Gobert's chest, finishing through traffic. Um, He was relentless going to the basket. And I think most people realize like the big weakness of his game right now is the outside shot, right? But New Orleans has thought through that. They're not just going to let him stand out there on the wing and, you know, what am I doing? How am I going to get my shot? (laughs) They're getting him in motion. They're getting him moving downhill. They're bringing him off curls and screens. They're putting the ball in his hands in in various positions. And so I'm, you know, what I'm viewing uh, in terms of what I want to see on Wednesday night is just high level activity, right? I mean, if we get the uh, you know, dunk contest level dunks, fantastic. You know, that that's an added bonus. But what I want to just see from him is comfort moving, first of all, you know, no lingering effects, uh, either mentally or physically uh, from his knee injury. And then I want to see just big time activity level on the offensive end where it doesn't feel like, you know, he's the, you know, the thumb sticking out sideways, or he's, you know, tentative, trying not to get into Brandon Ingram's way. I want Zion to realize, like, you know, he's the show here. You know, he is ultimately going to be their franchise player long term, even if Ingram winds up being a perennial all-star player. Like, if they're going to be a title team, it has to be Zion's team. So I want to see that level of assertiveness from him uh, and then also just the involvement. I want to make sure his teammates, it's kind of like welcoming him back with open arms on the court, though. This isn't just like, you know, patting him on the back. Yay, we got Zion back. It's like, okay, uh, he is fully involved uh, in their game plan. Now, statistically, you know, what does that look like? Well, uh, you know, I think if we get anything in the range of like, you know, 16 points, eight rebounds, like to me, that would probably save him from the, you know, criticism from the the boo birds. I mean, something in that range. And I think it also depends on how many minutes he plays. Are they going to scale that back a little bit? I do think it's worth noting their original timeline on him had Zion returning in kind of mid or early to mid uh, December. So they've milked this thing for, you know, more than an extra month. I I think out of an abundance of caution, they said they would do that in terms of handling him. Obviously, I think we should all be grateful that they didn't just shut him down for the season and go the, you know, the Ben Simmons route uh, on this one. Um, But that could also impact, you know, his statistical output or, or, you know, what he's able to put up in the box score just based on how many minutes he plays. Right. And I I mean... I think just, yeah, adding to that point, the anticipation is certainly building, and I want to see his effort level as well. I want to see his explosiveness. I want to see if the Pelicans alter how they play at all to accentuate his strengths. Now, I would assume that, you know, this is, the Pelicans are, you know, one of the fastest teams uh, in the league in terms of, you know, after an opponent makes a shot or misses a shot, they're taking a shot faster than anybody else. So they like to get up and down. I want to see if he can be in shape. I want to see uh, how he takes advantage of just transition game. And to your point about statistics, I, I think statistics matter for sure. I expect him to get a double-double, but I also want to see him be loud in those minutes. I want to see like lob finishes. I want to see ridiculous weak side blocks. I want to see uh, you know him barreling through guys, dunking on people. That's kind of a part of the excitement here, I think, to a great degree. So stats are wonderful. Uh, I want to see them be like I, I want the stats to jump off the page also yeah who am I kidding I do want to see dunks and blocks I mean that was a really nice like intellectual approach earlier for me but you know let's be honest I need to keep it real no we want to see the Zion highlights I mean that's what everyone's been looking for 
since his days as a high schooler. It kind of defined a lot of his time at Duke, although they did an awful lot of winning with him on the court too. Um, and, you know, that's part of the show. And I think he knows that. And I just think he can't help himself too, right? It's like if he's out there for 20 to 25 minutes, he is going to do at least three things that basically no one else in the NBA can do with very few exceptions. And I think that's why there's going to be so many people tuning in. Now, I did mention the TV ratings aspect of this. I love that you know ESPN and TNT for years have kind of struggled to play the flex game and alter their schedule on a moment's notice. But you know Zion comes back with a week's notice and ESPN's going to be down there, no problem. You know just you know go ahead and change the entire thing. I think it's great. We just call it the Zion flex. You know anytime that they can get him on, they're going to do it. Um, and it's no joke that his impact, uh, you know, in the interest of this sport, especially among younger fans, it's out of control. I, I did a story right around Christmas about the NBA's TV ratings and talking to some people in the league office, including Adam Silver, um, but also talking to TV executives. And the one thing the TV executives uh, at the network stressed to me was, look, yes, they took a huge hit from Zion missing basically the entire first three months of the season because they had front-loaded the Pelicans on their national TV schedules on TNT. Remember, they were on opening night. They were on the day before mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. They were put on th- uh, on Christmas Day. And I said, well, do you have any regrets about that? Was, kind of, was it too much too soon? Should you have watched how things played out with Zion? And they were like, no, we should be fired, basically, if we didn't load our schedule with Zion games. That's the level of interest and the kind of the magnitude of hype around this guy. And so, you know, of course, it, you know, there's a cost for him being injured, but the cost of missing out on all the potential, uh, you know, eyeballs that would have been on there if he had played was significantly worse. So they're basically saying it's a no brainer. He moves the needle like basically no one else besides LeBron at this point. And because he's the new sensation, um, you know, arguably he's even influencing the ratings uh, more uh, just because everyone has that curiosity factor. Uh, what I also worry about, though, Michael, are there going to be people who are hate watching Zion? Uh, and he's been getting a lot of buzz. He's now in this NBA level for the first time, going against uh, you know the smartest, uh, most agile, longest interior defenders. There are some holes to his game, like the jump shot that I mentioned. Um, he's not really like that closing guy who's going to take over you know, late in games and go one on one and get you a bucket. We saw that kind of uh, you know bite Duke in the NCAA tournament where you know he he has the ball in the final possession, winds up kind of giving it to RJ. Um, you know, in hindsight, not the world's best decision. Um, so I'm curious, do you think that the excitement? What percentage of the excitement is positive? I guess is my question, right? Are 90% of people gawkers and 10% of people tuning in to make fun of his body type? Um, or uh, would you categorize the uh, the percentage breakdown differently? I think you're a super sad person if you're watching Zion with uh, uh, looking to point out the, the negatives in his game before he uh, has played a minute of regular season NBA basketball. Uh, this is kind of, uh, you know, when guys with a lot of hype come into the league, I feel like most of them have a honeymoon period. Guys at this level, I mean, where we we praise all the strengths that they have. We kind of forget about the weaknesses or, or put them on the back burner for the time being and uh, just appreciate 
what where they are already at such a young age and and speculate on what they can be and get really excited about it and then what we do is you know once they lose in the playoffs by year four if they haven't won a championship we start to pick things apart dramatically so i would hope that you know zion can avoid major criticism through the first few seasons of his career as people understand that he's super young and and adjusting to the game and he has these flaws but the the benefits that he has like significantly outweigh the weaknesses but you know who knows the internet is a super cynical place and uh i if i were him i would not be looking at my twitter mentions if i scored eight points in my debut yeah, that's a little bit what I'm concerned about. And of course, Twitter is not representative, right? So, I mean, it, it may wind up being that the percentages on Twitter are one thing if he doesn't play well or doesn't live up to the moment, quote unquote, whereas in real life, you know, like 99% of people are just really excited to have Zion back dunking so we can uh, enjoy the highlight clips. I think it's fascinating to watch. I mean, when you look at the situation, it is set up really well for him. I mean, New Orleans is not a market or an organization with crazy expectations, right? They're coming off the heartbreak of the Anthony Davis exit. He's done everything possible to endear himself to those fan bases. The smartest thing ever was going to the LSU games. I mean, that was, uh, you know, <laughs> a real, real good timing given how good that team was, <laughs> but also just such an obvious way to be like, okay, New Orleans, like I ride with you. Um, he's got the magnetic personality, the natural charm. Um, so his timing is good. He's the right person, right city, right fit. Um, and now he really does have the potential where he could alter this playoff race. I mean, I think that's a big factor here. Uh, if he doesn't do it, if they miss the playoffs, I don't think anyone's going to blame them. They're just going to say, well, if we had Zion all year, you know, things would have been different. But if he does, it's like the ultimate house money situation where now they're going into the playoffs. They're the, uh, you know, the upstart team, maybe, you know, stealing a little bit of shine from the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, and it winds up setting up really, really well for him uh, from a, a popularity standpoint. So there are a lot of things going on. I guess I should just ask you directly, though, Michael, is Zion going to change the West playoff race? Are the Pelicans going to be the eighth seed uh, thanks to the you know irrepressible duo of Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson? It's going to be really interesting. There's a few teams at the bottom of the Western Conference playoff race right now. Uh, 538 gives the Pelicans a 53% chance, uh, 53% uh, favorability of making the playoffs. Wow. So uh, that's a little, I would assume that's, you know, baked in on what happened, what they, what we expected of them in the preseason and understanding that a lot of key pieces have been hurt, Zion included. So you throw Zion in there. And it transforms what they can do, and it makes them a better basketball team. So uh, you add that to the fact that the Pelicans have the third easiest remaining schedule. Uh, Brandon Ingram has looked like an all-star, might make the team. Derek Favors has looked really good since he's been healthy. Lonzo Ball has had renaissance moments where, you know, he's he's shooting the ball. He's more aggressive, taking it to the basket. He's getting the triple doubles that we thought he could. Uh, coming out of UCLA and with the all-around game, and uh, you add Drew Hel- Drew Holiday, who will uh, uh, presumably get healthy at some point soon and give his borderline all-star contributions to the team. And it's tough to pick against the Pelicans coming out of the eight. There's a few other teams down there. You have Portland, uh, who kind of seem to be fading, in my view. Um, you have Phoenix, who, who've been up and down uh, of late. You have the Spurs, who you should never count out and, and look really good with DeMar DeRozan and Aldridge kind of, uh, you know, kind of playing with a more 
futuristic slant on their games with Aldridge finally shooting threes and their bench just complementing those two really, really well. Yeah, isn't it hilarious how you can just evolve your entire offense by taking two (laughs) steps backwards? Like, really? I I mean, it's not quite that simplistic, but really that's been, like, the biggest difference is Aldridge after a decade of everyone begging him to shoot three-pointers, which goes all the way back (laughs) to his early days uh, in Portland. And for whatever reason, it wasn't like a Ben Simmons thing. He just like really did not like the idea uh, of shooting three-pointers, sort of like me in bowling. I'm not a real big bowler. Like I get to the alley, the shoes are kind of disgusting. The lighting is weird. Like I understand some people have fun doing that, but for me, it's just kind of like, it just feels a little bit like a germ factory. And then like, what's really the payoff? I mean, I'm, I'm not really like a drinker or anything. It doesn't seem that great. I feel like that sort of just constant annoyance, right? Just at all, at all the surroundings was Aldridge's approach to three pointers for his entire career until like three weeks ago. It's made a huge difference. I mean, DeRozan's been absolutely out of control. His numbers are crazy, super efficient. And a lot of it is just the spacing aspect where uh, you know, he finally, you know, has a little bit more room to work and he's taking advantage of it. Um, whether San Antonio can sustain that turnaround, though, that uh, it, it, to me is the interesting question, because when you're looking at the teams in this mix, don't they jump out as like the most experienced, more veterans, more proven guys, like just more stable than, say, Memphis, Phoenix, Portland and the Pelicans? Like the Spurs are, are kind of a different type of team. So I think the. Um, the conservative better in, in me would say, well, you know, San Antonio is going to be the last man standing in this one. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of those two, which only raises the stakes in Wednesday's game with Zion's debut. And it'll be super interesting to see just how that all plays out. But yeah, I mean, you, you look at the Spurs, they're just kind of a wave that comes at you with one of the best benches in the league with Patty Mills, Derek White, Lonnie Walker is now... Uh, a, a significant contributor to them when when pop lets him play through mistakes which is wonderful and so you add that youth and that athleticism to a team of of veterans in uh you know pop's experience system and it's it's machine like on offense defense has been a different question but uh uh, but uh, offensively, they've been able to score the ball pretty well, and and particularly of late with their starting five outscoring opponents by over 10 points per 100 possessions over the last 15 games, which is a, a huge, significant mark in my opinion, because when the season began in the first few weeks, the starting five was was pretty trash. So that's a, that's a significant turnaround. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'd flip a coin here, honestly, between the Spurs and the Pelicans. I know that's a cop-out. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I mean, one of the major, uh, you know, American Eastern Seaboard uh, newspapers just nominated two people for the, or for their endorsement for the Democratic nominee. So, like, you're not copping out any worse <laughs> than they are. I mean, I guess I don't know if the Spurs are Elizabeth Warren or Klobuchar in this analogy, but, I mean, we've seen worse behavior from media members this week alone than what you're trying to do here, Michael. <laughs> don't worry. Um, when I look at the Pelicans, here's what makes me nervous. They're four and a half games out of the eighth seed right now. Uh, they've got you know three or four teams they've got to get through to make the playoffs. And then there's a couple teams actually behind them, Minnesota and Sacramento, where I'm not sure either one of those teams has necessarily given up yet. Both those teams have had tough seasons, but they're playing for something, right? So is there an argument that there's just so many teams in this pack, they're all going to eat each other and having enough upward momentum uh, over the course of you know really what uh, amounts to basically a three-month stretch? 
is that going to favor the teams that have already done their work early? I think that's my biggest concern with the Pelicans. I guess the counter argument there is if their schedule is a little bit easier, that could help. Um, and if Zion is the type of player who we expect him to be, I mean, that's a huge boost and they should outperform what they've done uh, to date currently. Uh, but that's my concern is that it took so long for him to get back. The hole is, you know, bigger than it might seem right now. I think those 538 odds are like kind of nuts, to be honest. Like I, I, when I'm looking at this, I would give them something closer to, I mean, even generously, like a 35% chance of making the playoffs. And some of this is that maybe I'm just betting against my heart, you know, because it would be incredible for Zion to have that story of turning them around, taking them to the playoffs. And then it's like LeBron versus Zion in the first round of the playoffs. Can you imagine <laughs> the, the TV ratings on that one? So, um, you know, especially the AD factor, you know, into that uh, matchup as well. Uh, that is the NBA's TV ratings dream. And I think, frankly, that's my dream right now, too. I think you just solidified why that's going to happen for all the conspiracy theorists out there. That's it's got to happen. That's I, I didn't even like put two and two together with the fact that that would be the matchup, but that that just needs to happen for all of our sanity. Like I, I very much <laughs> want to watch that matchup. I know. I, so what you're saying is there's going to be five teams just coincidentally simultaneously tanking to open the way for uh, <laughs> the Pelicans to to get themselves into the eighth seed. It just feels too good to be true. Uh, that's the only thing that's got me hesitant here. But you know, at the same moment, part of this is I'm just protecting myself here, Michael. I can't even explain or express how excited I am for this week, for Zion to finally be back. And longtime listeners will know I have a tortured history with Zion. I went to his game against uh, North Carolina when he blew out the shoe. I was sitting courtside and got to enjoy him for all of one possession. I did get an Instagram of him jumping for the opening tip, which is one of my most prized photos. Um, but that was the night, right? And then I was up until 2 a.m. writing about, you know, <laughs> the implications for Nike and, and everything else with the, the blown sneaker. The second time I saw Zion, I wrote an entire story before he even played about the hype at Summer League. You know, tickets being scalped for $400 in the parking lot by, you know, people when it's like 100 degrees outside or 115 degrees outside, uh, you know, TV ratings through the roof for Summer League, fans filling the building, and, you know, Zion made it basically eight minutes, I think, before he got injured the second time. So this, you know, <laughs> this is the track record that I've got going for myself, Michael. This is why I'm, I might be watching this game with, you know, through my, my fingers kind of covering my face a little bit, and yet I can't help myself. I'm going back to the well, and I think, you know, when we're looking at the future of the NBA, we've talked a lot this season, you and I have, about... Giannis and Luca, and kind of the international revolution. I look at Zion Williamson as sort of the biggest, uh, you know, surest American prospect that there is right now, right? And and so he hasn't been in those conversations just because he's been injured. But it's time, I think, to really think about okay, where does he belong uh, in this discussion of the brightest, you know, rising stars uh, in the game? And so with that, I think we should pivot here, Michael, to a little ranking, right? Let's do a top five of the 23 and under prospects that are in the NBA. Or I guess if you want to go crazy, you can go with high school prospects too. And I'm curious to see if Zion is on your list, first of all. Um, and if so, where? So why don't you kick this off for us? Uh, your top five players under 23 or 23 and under. And go ahead. Let's make this really official. Let's do a countdown. Give me your number five. Okay, so number five, uh, I, I mean, I want to quickly preface this by saying this was the hardest list I've basically ever had to put together. The 23 and under talent is 
it's ridiculous. And anyone who has significant beef with our list, I would love to hear your list. And, well, uh, slow down, Michael. I think this might just be a case <laughs> of you being an overthinker. Have it, has anyone ever told you that? Has your wife told you you're an overthinker? Absolutely not. Never. No. no never. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you don't need the preface. Everybody realizes that we're doing this in this moment right now. We're, we're ranking Zion completely blindly. We have not seen him play. Um, and this stuff fluctuates, you know, from year to year, or sometimes even, you know, you know, six month time periods uh, or increments. Uh, it's always good to sort of relook at this. I imagine, uh, you know, heading into the next season, that these lists would potentially look different. Uh, but we're going to yeah, give it our sure. best uh, guess right now, and we're not going to make apologies for it. And sure, you can call on your haters to send in emails to openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. But you're standing tall with your chest out, Michael, giving us number five. I am. I'm super confident. Uh, my number five is uh, Bam Adebayo. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, that's exactly why I had to preface this. Um, this was really, really tough. Uh, and I basically came to this conclusion on a few, for a few reasons. One being, if I'm starting a franchise with someone, I want to take somebody who I just I, I know what the baseline is. I know exactly what I have. So with Bam, I know I have grade A rebounding. I know I have grade A plus defense. I know I have someone who can, uh, you know, someone who can switch, someone who can drop, someone who can handle the ball, someone who works extremely hard and has a high trajectory going forward because for this exercise, it's really tempting to just look at past performance and what guys have been doing this season and just judge it strictly on that. But we have to guess things forward and we have to forecast, you know, numbers and impact. And I just love how far Bam has come from when he first entered the league until now. And some of that is contextual. Uh, Some of that is based on opportunity, but a lot of it is just hard work and uh, taking advantage of the situation that he's in with the players who are around him. So I love Bam a lot. Anyone who listens to this show knows that. Um, and if I had a team with Bam, I know that I need to get you know someone who can you know score the basketball, which is pretty important beside him. But I just I know I have that baseline with Bam, and that's why I'm going with him at number five. Right. I considered him for my list, not for the top five, but in the kind of the honorable mention category. I think the tricky part is when you're doing the discussion of who do you want to start a franchise with, you know, with these young prospects. I think the natural tendency for me is to gravitate towards lead scorers, ball handlers, or, you know, at least like number one or number two scoring options, because that's sort of the hardest thing to find. And then kind of year after year, that's what's driving title teams too, right? I mean, it's the premier wing playmakers, uh, or you know the, the crazy good lead ball handlers who are scoring and, and passing hybrids. So I think that's why someone like Bam in general gets short shrift in this conversation. But I think it's smart that you include him um, because uh, he does have the playmaking aspect, um, but also like you're describing, like his ceiling is really high based on his improvement. Um, and you know there may be a day where we see like you know the best player on a team is like a defensive stalwart on a championship team. Um, and you know, we're, we're just in a weird era in the NBA where I think that things have shifted so far towards playmakers that that's ultimately why I left a guy like him and also a a guy like Jaron Jackson Jr. off of my top five, um, just, you know, because they could be the best in the NBA at what they do, but maybe that's not the most valuable thing for titles, if that makes sense. No, that's a good point. Yeah, for sure. All right, Michael, give me your number four. 
My number four is Donovan Mitchell. And I have him on this list where, you know, he's he's kind of that scorer, playmaker that you just discussed and the value of having someone like that if you actually want to win a championship and drive your team towards the upper echelon of the league. Uh, I had him... You know, there's a there's a certain class of player, 23 and under, who I I would put with Donovan. You know, someone like Brandon Ingram, Devin Booker, and we discussed all of this in uh, our last episode talking about All Star consideration. The reason why I have Donovan here is is basically just like I'm confident that I've seen him do it in the playoffs, and that might be a cop out, but it just gives him the slightest edge over Ingram and over Booker, who have kind of. Uh, throughout their careers, their teams have not necessarily performed better with them on the floor. I just I know for sure that's what I'm getting with Donovan, and so that's that's the reason why I go with him here. I, I like Donovan on this list. I did not have him in my top five, but another guy I considered a huge factor in his favor, and I think this should matter when we're talking about guys to start a franchise, is the marketability and the connection with the fan base. It's natural. It's authentic. They love him, and he's not going out of his way to do it. It's just kind of who he is. That matters a ton. This goes all the way back to the Kevin Durant versus Greg Oden debate for me. Michael, I don't know if you know this, but one of the most pathetic things I've done in my life was write like a 15 or 20 page research paper with footnotes on why the Blazers should draft Kevin Durant with the number one pick over Greg Oden. It was kind of a publicity stunt for my blog at the time, Draft Kevin Durant, um, where I was just trying to (laughs) do whatever I could pulling out all the stops to convince Kevin Pritchard to take Durant. And in that research paper, I actually spent a lot more time on the marketability side of things than I did on the health side of things. So in hindsight, uh, maybe I should have been a little bit more skeptical of you know Odin's uh, injury issues and health uh, track record. But my argument was basically, look, Odin's not going to sell shoes. He's not going to sell as many jerseys as Kevin Durant. He is not going to be this flashy highlight level player uh, at least on offense. I mean, Odin did have some spectacular, uh, you know, finish dunks and, you know, block shots for sure in, uh, early in his career. But it was just so clear to me that Durant was going to be this marketing powerhouse. You know, Nike was going to give him his shoe. Uh, his jerseys were going to be near the top of the charts. Um, he was obviously addicted to basketball at that point of his career. And, you know, fans tend to rally around guys like that where it's clear their investment level is super duper high. And to me, I thought that should have factored in. I mean, the counter argument was, oh, big guys are going to win you titles. I wasn't completely sold on that. What I was sold on was that KD was going to be, you know, a scoring champ, you know, multiple times over and a perennial all-star that people wanted to buy stuff when he sold it. And to me, that should have been a factor or a bigger factor um, in Portland's decision-making. Uh, in part because they had just come through a, a pretty rough time period where they lost the fan base during the quote-unquote jailblazer era, right? I, I think they probably looked at it like, oh, we've got Brandon Roy to do a lot of the things I'm describing. Um, you know, ultimately, like, you look back at the the glory years of the Thunder, Kevin was like one of the most beloved players in the league. And in that fan base, you know, he was basically a, a saint. So that's a long time ago, by the way. I mean, certain things have happened since then, aka 2016. But to me, that's a big factor. (laughs) And I think with Mitchell, it's a huge argument in his favor, right? I mean, I think he's cut from a similar cloth. And, you know, you know, your your season ticket renewals are going to be pretty good if you've got Mitchell on your uh, marketing materials, your sales material. And uh, I think for that reason, he deserves strong consideration here. All right, who's your number three? 
Uh, my number three is Jason Tatum. And I go with Tatum, and I put him slightly above Ingram, Booker, and Donovan because just pure upside. And I've watched a, a ton of Jason Tatum basketball games since he was first drafted by the Celtics. I just think that as a scorer, like he has, he has MVP ceiling. He has uh, multiple scoring leader, scoring champ seasons ahead of him. He can put the ball in the basket in just about any way imaginable already. So when I just look at that and then I try to project out where he's going and what his ceiling is in one of the most important areas of the game, if not the most important, he's just top tier. And I combine that with his size. I combine that with his his defensive versatility and his upside on that end and the growth that we've seen from last year to this year just as an all-around team and individual defender. And I factor in his off-ball effectiveness and his his willingness to sacrifice in a winning, in a winning environment. Uh, the fact that he's a, an extremely good outside shooter, he can play away from the ball and be super effective. And if I'm just, you know, building around one type of player, it's just so easy to draft for talent or draft for or, or sign players based on talent than need when I have someone like Tatum as opposed to someone like Trey Young, where I, I have to surround him with a certain type of player or drafting uh, or having Ben Simmons. And I know that I have to surround him with certain types of players. So that's where Tatum just kind of separates himself from a lot of the guys in this category. Yeah, I mean, I think I like real plus minus because of what it does at the top of the charts and at the bottom of the charts is pretty, pretty accurate at identifying the very best players and the very worst players. And when you're looking at Tatum, I mean, he's still in the top 10 league wide by real plus minus. And the guys who are above him at his position are like the creme de la creme, right? LeBron, Giannis, Kawhi. I mean, that's basically it, right? So that metric is projecting him having the MVP ceiling that you're describing as he gets older and as he progresses. And I think the eye test is right there with it. I mean, the defensive improvement has been really impressive. I would still like to see, you know, better efficiency um, offensively, a little bit more creativity, you know, deeper bag uh, on that end to get him to where we're really thinking of him as like the lead, you know, number one clear cut scoring option because he's still part of kind of an ensemble cast this year. But he's also super duper young, and I think he can get there. And if he was in a different uh, team context, could I see him scoring as often uh, as Brandon Ingram? Uh, I think I could, right? So I, I, can, I, can I just say something really quickly? Saying that uh, you want Jason Tatum to have a deeper bag is like going to McDonald's and saying, I want more calories in my Big Mac. Like, what, 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 how deeper can we get here with the bag? I think we get a lot deeper. I mean, he's fine <laughs> off the dribble, but like I, I don't view him as like this incredibly tough cover. Like you know, he's he's going one on one in Kevin Durant style or like Paul George style. I mean, I think those guys are still clear cuts above. We're talking about like premier wing scores. Um, am I wrong? Well, I mean, when I just watch him, he's got the footwork. He's got the separation on any defender in the league, and he's 21 years old. So I mean, if you look back at KD is a really tough comp just because he's one of the best scorers of all time. But like Paul George when he was 21, Kawhi when he was 21, I mean, any of the other premier wings you want to throw out there, Jimmy Butler when he was 21, like Tatum, what he's done in the postseason and against just top level defense, defensive schemes that are designed to slow him down. 
and throughout his career in the regular season and the 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 fact that he's he impacts winning in so many different ways as a scorer like I will give you that he's Uh, been I mean I I remember from his playoffs like a a disappearing act last year Uh, what what was he doing against Milwaukee I mean I remember whoa 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 okay We're throwing last year out the window. I mean, it's a lot of different factors there but that we can't even get into right now. Well, but, look, I think this crystallizes what we're saying. Is he going to yeah. be Jimmy Butler or is he going to be Kevin Durant, right? You're saying Kevin Durant's an impossible standard. Well, if we want him to get to the MVP champion, top three franchise guy, 23 and under level, he's got work to do. That's not insulting to Jason Tatum. I mean, I understand you're defensive because he might be one of your family members. But <laughs> um, look, like there's... You know, there is definitely another cut above for him to do, and also from the playmaking side as well. And I think he's made some uh, progress there. Certainly, we're seeing more of these like, uh, you know, ambitious passes to to open shooters, and he's drawing more attention uh, as he continues to develop his own scoring. Uh, but I don't think he's on the same level as some of those premier names that I was mentioning earlier, like the very best guys at his position. And the counter is yes, he's still very very young. Uh, he can get there, and I'm just saying I, I want to see him get there. That's all. You know, you don't have to. No. You know, no, it's that's okay. Right. No, D- don't freak no. out. It's fine. <laughs> no, all that, all of that uh, constructive criticism is is very fair, and he does have areas of his game he needs to improve. Most notably, right now, he needs to make layups. That would be wonderful. Um, I'm just going to go into my number two now, please. Uh, okay, so I have Zion here. And I love it. See, yeah. I think the the whole point of this exercise was to test the recency bias, right? It's like, because coming into the season, everyone's in love with Zion. Then he disappears for three months and it's like, okay, well, how, how far are we going to drop him? And what you've now determined is that you haven't probably dropped him at all. No, I, I, I haven't. I mean, I was just rewatching some of the possessions that he had in the preseason. And it's just like the wow factor is just, it's it's ridiculous and if you can score if you can get to the rim and score as efficiently as he does like I don't know I I just don't know what defensive coverages there are going to be when he's in his prime that can stop him and presumably by then he'll have a respectable jump shot he'll be working on different areas of his game that aren't rounded out right now I mean he could just be so terrifying and I mean the the big hang up is just his physical health and where he goes from here in terms of can he play 34 minutes a night for an 82 game season for his career how long before his body breaks down if it does uh those are significant concerns i feel like but right now just i'm kind of just not caring about them and putting him here at number two because it's sort of like the what if he stays healthy factor uh, I mean, he's going to be better than Blake Griffin ever was, one would say, and that's a damn good basketball player. So, uh, yeah, I just have Zion here, and it wasn't really that difficult for me to to put him above uh, some of the other guys who have played significant minutes and shown what they can accomplish. So I'm assuming you have Luka at number one then? Who? L- Luka Doncic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have Luka at number one. Uh, that was That was a no-brainer. So was there any discussion for you between Luca and Zion? Like, was there any, was there any back and forth? I mean, we've seen an awful lot from Luca. I mean, just out of the world uh, player efficiency rating for an age 20 guy, the triple doubles every single night. Dallas is obscenely uh, efficient team offense. Did you give any consideration to Zion over Luca or no? 
No, the the gap between Luca and everybody else is just it's a Grand Canyon. Like for me, like building around Luca is just I don't want to say it's easy, but when you are that complete offensively already and you already make your teammates better and you're big enough to not be a total liability on defense and you know physically there is there's just notable areas where he can still improve it's terrifying how good he's going to be when he's 27 years old it's like the gap is just it's so wide Luca is and he's already an MVP candidate like it's it's just no no question yeah, I think you're right. I think the gap between Luca at one and anybody else at number two is bigger than the gap between number two and like number eight, right? Because if you're ranking these other guys, in addition to people who you mentioned, you didn't mention John Morant, you didn't mention Ben Simmons, you didn't mention Trey Young or Jaron Jackson Jr. And so now you're getting to a list of almost 10 guys. And all those guys to me are like potential franchise players. And in some cases, they've already established themselves as kind of franchise players. So uh, that's pretty wild. And it says a lot about Luca. and we could probably turn this into another two-hour-long gush fest for Luca. so maybe we shouldn't do that. I'm going to give you my top five real quick. I agonized over the number five spot. I had uh, you know Ingram or Tatum. I ultimately decided on Ingram because I think he has a slightly higher offensive ceiling. Um, but like I said, it's agony. I'm going back and forth. I'm not going to nominate, you know, two people uh, like the New York Times, but uh, <laughs> it, it was, you know, just razor thin there. Uh, and you know, his work here lately has been super impressive. And it goes back to what you were saying about Bam in terms of like, if he's improving this much and he's still this young and he did come into the NBA awfully young and he's just now really finding a system that's uh, a good fit and, and uh, you know, an organization that's catering to him you know, where does this go? What's the upside? And I do think that a lot of the things you said about Tatum in terms of, you know, MVP upside or perennial all-star, that kind of thing, you know, we should start to be thinking about Ingram, you know, four or five years down the road being in that mix as well. Uh, My number four pick is probably going to bother you, I would imagine, um, Ben Simmons. And the reason why I picked him, he's on the older side compared to these guys. I think he's 23. So he's just barely kind of getting into this mix. I'm still convinced if he had a team that was completely built around him from an offensive standpoint that he would be talked about in a totally different manner. I think that his reputation uh, is uh, undercut by his lack of shooting, obviously, but also by the fit and the style and the scheme in Philadelphia, where if you really were building a team to accentuate his strengths and cover his weaknesses, it would look like almost the exact opposite of the Philadelphia 76ers. And so from that standpoint, if you're giving me, you know, grade A defender and an offensive player who has a potential to lead a really, really good offense, if he's just turned loose and he's the main guy and everything revolves around him and it's all spread out, um, I like that team. And I also think it would be a very entertaining team. I go back a little bit uh, to that run a couple of years ago down the stretch when Embiid was out and Simmons was just really clicking on all cylinders, the triple doubles, they're playing fast. You know, if you just do that every single night, I think it actually would change his personality too. I think he'd just be a happier, more forthcoming person if he was almost in a comfort zone on the court. Um, cause that is a hangup I have with him. Like it sounds great to have him as your franchise player until like you have to interview him or put him on a billboard or kind of do anything yeah. that requires him interacting with the public. And then you're just like, Oh boy, this is just going to go poorly for everyone. Um, 
but I still think, you know, if he's in a better, more comfortable, more tailored situation, uh, I think it could look a lot differently uh, than it does currently. My number three pick, and I'll be honest, I'm shocked you didn't have him on your list, is John Morant. You know, you got to answer for this, Michael. Come on, man. Why, why are you uh, snubbing John Morant? He, uh, it was very, very difficult. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and I don't even have, like, bulletproof points to support my decision to leave Ja off. But, like, I wanted to get Bam on really bad, and it's my list, so shove it. That's basically <laughs> my, my defense. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that we talked about with Donovan Mitchell apply to Ja Morant. And I just think that Ja is you know, slipperier and trickier on the ball. I think that he's quicker. Um, I think that he's a better passer, more natural passer. And then I just think he's younger. And I also think he's more explosive, you know, uh, leaper as well, which is tricky because, you know, Mitchell's dunk contest guy and everything else. Um, so I like him on the physical side just a little bit more. I think he has a little bit purer of a position in terms of, you know, he's a one where Mitchell, he you know, maybe he can do a little bit of both. Um, so I think that makes it a little bit easier to build around him. He's younger. So the, the upside's probably a little bit higher. And then I also just think he is going to be like a top three or four marketable player in the league here in the very, very near future. Like if I was between the ages of 11 and 25 or, you know, any of the demographics that people are trying to target. I think that John Morant would be basically the coolest person in the country, like even outside of sports. It just seems like he has that vibe to him. And if I was any of these companies, you know, selling hamburgers or soda or whatever else, I would be chasing this guy around and trying to get in on the ground floor with him. Um, And I think that's basically exactly what the Grizzlies have done. And I think they're very smart for doing so. Um, Number two, Zion. And for much the same reason, I don't want to give up on the dream yet. I'm not prepared to give up on the dream. And the dream is so beautiful uh, and so tantalizing. Like if he really hits, uh, it will be a sport changing phenomenon that uh, I'm not out yet. You know, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt after these injuries. I am very concerned about the accumulation effect uh, from these, uh, you know, situations where do small things turn into medium-sized things, turn into larger things? Um, I'm definitely concerned, like you mentioned, about long-term viability. What's his window as the number one guy on a champion? Is it shorter than some of these other players that we're describing? Uh, but I still want to go along for the ride. And then, of course, number one uh, is Luka Doncic, and it, it wasn't particularly close. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. 
Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $1,799. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. We're going to move along now and take some questions from the Open Floor Globe. Asaf writes... This summer, most of the people covering the NBA initially believed the Al Horford was bound to resign with the Celtics as he was a, a key part for what they were doing uh, when he was there. Then Horford goes and signs with their hated rivals with what looked to be an amazing win for the 76ers in free agency. Now we see this has backfired for Philadelphia and turned them from a sure contender to a team that must make hard decisions sooner rather than later. Was Danny Ainge's evil plan all along? Will we see Horford move before the season ends? And is there a chance he goes back to Boston? So what do you think of this idea, Michael? Is Al Horford sort of the sleeper agent sent to take down the Sixers? um, Or is a soft reaching? Uh, This is a slight reach, I would say. I mean, I I definitely agree that the, the fit has been pretty atrocious when Embiid, Horford, and Simmons are all on the floor. And, uh, I mean, but you look at now, and Embiid is out, and Horford's value kind of shines. And so you kind of have to keep him around just because Embiid is such a question mark in terms of how many games he'll be able to play for the rest of this season uh, and going forward through uh, the life of Horford's contract even. So I, I, I am a a proponent of of trying to move Horford at some point, depending on what you're able to get back, whether it be shooting, whether it be future assets. Uh, but it's just it's tough with that contract to move. And I mean, I I highly doubt he goes back to Boston ever because he's on a contract that the Celtics weren't willing to pay in the first place. So I don't know why they would want to reacquire him. Uh, they had a a, a set. A monetary amount limit ceiling whatever you want to call it and uh what he's on currently is too high for their blood so i i just don't see that ever happening i don't see a reunion ever happening yeah i worry he's going to get into kind of depressing territory like is he the next kevin love here down the road right where if things don't work out uh, i mean they're not going to be as bad as the cavaliers obviously but you know if you're fast forwarding two years he's got this huge contract is he on a team do they have to trade him to try to rejigger things in Philadelphia? If so, you know, how bad is the team that, that's willing to accept him at that number? Uh, you know, does he sort of just fade into obscurity in the last couple of years of his uh, of his deal? I, I do worry a little bit about uh, the end game for the Al Horford contract. Not sure I see the, the Boston reunion either, but interesting idea, Asaf, no question. Um, the tricky part with what you're describing about Horford as the Embiid insurance it's like that sounds great and it definitely helps during the regular season but how high of a ceiling do you have if Embiid is not doing it night to night in the playoffs and like Horford's your plug-in right like you're a second round team at best right so it's not like a fundamental flaw to what they're doing I mean you still would rather have Horford than not in that situation but this whole thing comes down to Embiid uh, at the end of the day for them so uh you know, that's, that's not Horford's fault, but it also just kind of makes you cringe, I think, even a little bit more at uh, Elton Brand's concept. 
Uh, as I say that, of course, I'm still paranoid that somehow those two guys together are going to take down Giannis and ruin the dream uh, of a you know 70-win finals appearance season for the Milwaukee Bucks. All right, Brian writes, I was recently at the Denver Nuggets versus Dallas Mavericks game last week in Dallas where the Nuggets beat Dallas by one. Naturally, in the excitement, I stood up to cheer on the Mavs, similar to some friends around me. Further, the lady behind me kept asking, can you sit down? I'm trying to enjoy the game. Dallas has a saying, keep Dallas pretentious. And this lady didn't stray too far from that ethos. Which arenas and or fan bases have you guys found to be pretentious? So I didn't know about that saying. First of all, that's pretty interesting. Uh, Portland's is keep Portland weird. Um, have you been to Dallas? Have you found it to be a particularly pretentious city? I've never been to Dallas, and I'm, I was curious when I read this whether this nickname or slogan or whatever uh, was created by people from Dallas or by people by, from, who, who hate Dallas. <laughs> it's not like the greatest slogan that you want. Yeah, like, are they that proud? I am Googling it. So he didn't make it up, first of all. They have t-shirts. There's definitely Keep Dallas pretentious t-shirts. I do think Dallas is sort of a wealth center within Texas. I don't know exactly if it's oil money or what. I'm sure people can, uh, can uh, you know, inform us on that. I do think that they view themselves maybe as a little bit upper crust and, and fancier than some of the other uh, Texas towns, certainly compared to, like, San Antonio. Um with that being said, do you have any nominations for pretentious fan bases? This emailer obviously is trying to get us into trouble. Um, I'm not sure if you're willing to take the bait, but what you got? I mean, I'm going to fearlessly just plow ahead by saying that you could make an argument for both the Knicks and the Nets. And these are the two arenas that I frequent uh, uh, in every game. Um, I would just say, like, for the Knicks... I, I, it goes back to Kristaps Porzingis's first game when it was just like everyone in the crowd had Stockholm syndrome and they couldn't understand why he wanted to leave. He was the bad guy in you know every time he touched the ball they, they were booing him uh, vociferously and I just it's like this fan base can't understand why someone would not want to sign there. They don't understand why KD says that it's not cool. And this isn't every single Knicks fan, but there's a large segment of them and a lot of them who attend the games. And, you know, they do make the crowd atmosphere more lively than it should be for such a terrible basketball team. But, like, they're just not realistic and they're not really understanding the predicament that they are in and how difficult it will be for them to climb out of it. So, so are we sure that's pretension or is it just delusion, Michael? Uh, tomato, tomato, I guess, for this situation. <laughs> Understandable. Good nomination. When I'm looking at a couple of the fan bases that I think people would usually think of, I feel like the Lakers would be a lot of people's answer. In general, I hate like painting with a broad brush on this stuff. I mean, when you go to Lakers games, you're definitely seeing outfits that are way more expensive than at any other NBA game. So if you associate the money element with the pretension side or like, I just want to sit here and look cool and, you know, have everybody realize that I'm, you know, far more uh, you know, rich and cool and hip than you are, there is that element at the Lakers games. But this season, the fans have been very strong. I mean, even just comparing... In the last couple of games, I went to the Rockets game in Houston, uh, Mavericks in Dallas. 
and those fans were not as engaged for a regular season game, and both those games were pretty good, as the Lakers have been throughout this season. The Lakers fans are just basically falling in love with this year's group in terms of the uh, you know, the hardworking aspect and a lot of the bench guys, you know, stepping up and, and playing more effectively than people thought. So to just immediately go to them, I think would be uh, unfair. I think in general, uh, my advice is if someone tells you to sit down at a basketball game, it's okay to turn around and tell them to stand up, you know, just encourage them. It's all right. Get on your feet a little bit. At the same time, though, I do think you need to pick your spots. If you're the one guy in the section who's standing up completely by yourself and you're doing it for the entire game, it's a little bit weird, right? Uh, does that bother you? Like when you go to games, Michael, if there's if there's that guy, um, would you ever tell someone to sit down? I've never told anyone to sit down, but it it... it <laughs> It does bother me, I'm not going to lie, uh, if you're standing for like, like I understand standing at the start or the end or the end of the first half or the end of any quarter uh, and cheering on your team. I've done it myself plenty of times, but like I also paid for a seat and I don't, like I, I, if I wanted to stand, I would pay for standing room tickets, but I did not. I paid for tickets that give me the right to sit down and relax and watch the team play in person. So... Uh, I've never actually said anything to anybody because I'm a coward, but uh, in my mind, I am thinking, please sit down right now. You are affecting my ability to enjoy this experience. Well, I think the emailer now knows the most pretentious fan base uh, in the NBA is actually Michael. Uh, Here he is. (laughs) Not only does he want to sit down and want other people to sit down, he can't be bothered to tell the people around him to sit down. Unbelievable, Michael. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah, I got got nothing. Yeah, I don't have too many other nominations here. I think in general, uh, people standing up bothers me way less than people leaving early. I hate it when uh, people leave arenas early even if the team is losing stick it out right come on if you're a true fan you don't bail halfway through the fourth quarter the Rockets fans um, have had this problem for years I mean Steph Curry used to just clear them out even from playoff games like in the third quarter they would just lose hope and just you know take off for the exits I mean understand you know people are coming from far and wide uh, down in Texas because you know there's the way the city's set up so it's probably a long drive home and everything else but you're going through all the effort to go to a basketball game and you have, you know, a consistent winner like the Rockets bailing early. It just really rubs me the wrong way. And the scene on Saturday night with the Lakers fans, you know, cheering LeBron with MVP chance throughout the fourth quarter, drowning out the home crowd. That's what really bugs me. Not one lady telling, uh, you know, our, our emailer to sit down. So on the hierarchy of bad fan behavior, I'm not sure that pretension, to me, it, it doesn't rank as high as indifference, right? Or it doesn't rank as high as kind of quitting or or uh, throwing in the towel earlier. That just bothers me, man. It grinds my gears. Yeah, I actually also despise fan bases while we're pseudo on the subject that uh, boo their own team or leave early at the at the, like the last playoff game. It's like if you bought a ticket to watch your team play you've got to stay till the end to congratulate them with a standing ovation on a, on a season well played like I, I i cannot stand fan bases that or or specific fans that leave early just on that last in that last game it's like show some respect come on what are we doing yeah. here 
Or if they're embarrassing, boom off the court. Let them know. You know, <laughs> send a message <laughs> sure. for yeah. send a message for next season. Like if you guys are going to get swept and Dwight Howard's getting ejected from Game Four of a, a first round sweep, go all out with it. All right, last email, Michael. It's on the lighter side. Henry writes. I'm emailing on behalf of my girlfriend, Kate, who has recently been expressing interest in NBA fandom, but she hasn't made the leap. I am encouraging her to start sooner rather than later, as she is uniquely positioned to have an ideal fan experience. She is a native of Memphis who currently lives in Wisconsin, about an hour outside of Milwaukee. She could spend her first season of NBA fandom alternating between the up-and-coming Grizzlies and the finals favorite Bucks and she couldn't be accused of bandwagging by even the most cynical NBA fan. My question is this, do you have any advice on how to introduce an NBA newbie to the spectacular league? Her NBA experience thus far has consisted mostly of watching me wail in frustration as the Kings throw away another game so I could use all the help I can get. Michael, um, this is an amazing uh, dynamic between <laughs> these uh, this couple where poor Henry has basically chosen a miserable existence as a Sacramento Kings fan, and his girlfriend Kate now is like lucking into possibly you know the two uh, you know best rising stocks in the entire league. So, what would you say uh, as advice to Henry uh, in this situation? Number one, Henry. Do not subject your girlfriend, poor Kate, to watching the Sacramento Kings play basketball. Like, if I was trying to introduce someone to the NBA, that might be the last team I would be showing as, hey, this is this is the product right here. Like, just, just cut bait on the Kings around Kate. That would yeah. be my first... When you're, when you're saying like, when's the last time they made the playoffs and there weren't iPhones at that point, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's going to turn a casual or an interested fan, you know, a, a curious fan away very quickly. Great point. Yeah. And then just like, I understand the fact that she's a native, nat- she's from Memphis, but she now lives uh, in Wisconsin, so there's the Bucks and the Grizzlies. I, I just think you got to pick one. I understand that. Call me the most cynical fan, I guess, of all time or, or, or NBA observer, but pick one. It'll just be more. It'll be a, a simpler uh, fan experience for her. She can go all in on either, you know, this Memphis Grizzlies situation where there's so much momentum and you're just basically guaranteed at least seven years of good times, if not more. Uh, or go all in on the Bucks, and you'll be able to attend games in person, and you risk, you know, there's a possibility Giannis leaves, and then you're kind of screwed, and then you could just go back to Memphis. But pick one at a time would be what I would say. Yeah, I'm right there with you, and I'm going to just put an even finer point on it. Pick the Grizzlies. She's from Memphis. Now, Henry, if things go well for you and Kate, the odds are you guys might be moving together at some point of your life into another market. You're probably not going to be in Wisconsin forever. It will be very weird if Kate does become this huge Bucks fan, and now she has to explain, well, I'm from Memphis, but I lived in Wisconsin, and it turns into this five-minute narrative for her. You want to keep it simple. She's from Memphis. She's a diehard Grizzlies fan. She loves John Morant, and she's got that beautiful Vancouver Grizzlies green John Morant throwback jersey that you just bought her for Valentine's Day, and she's riding with the Grizzlies forever. You could show her, obviously, the, the historical aspects of that organization. You can go back to the Zebo highlights once she's, uh, you know, kind of dipped her toe in this current group. But 
I think what you're, you know, going to be focusing on is John Brandt sells himself. You know, you can just go onto YouTube and spend all day long watching his highlights and, uh, you know, mention that he only wears tech fleece in different colors. To me, that's a huge selling point. Um, I'm not sure how into fashion Kate is here, but there's nothing better than just purple head to toe tech fleece or, you know, lime green head to toe tech fleece that uh, John Morant pulls out. That's another aspect that you can kind of get into uh, it with her. I'd also say, you know, one of the easiest ways to sell people on the NBA is social media. So if she's on Twitter uh, or Instagram, make sure she's following these guys, just getting a feel for their personality. Uh, he's another guy who's great on social media and, and kind of same deal with Jaron. You know, he likes, you know, rappers I've never heard of and you know, anime and all this stuff that I really don't understand. But maybe someone like Kate, who is certainly cooler than me and more connected uh, in the world, uh, would be able to understand that. Um, in general, though, Henry, I think you're overthinking it. I would be putting games on I, and I would be, um, you know, like Michael said, sticking away from the Sacramento King stuff as much as possible and um, take her to a game for sure. Uh, I Grizzlies uh, Bucks tickets can't be that expensive. I don't know if they've already played in, uh, in uh, Milwaukee yet this year, but that fan experience is crucial. Uh, and, you know, get good seats, sit down close to the action. You can hear the players talking. To me, I think that's ultimately what hooked me uh, as a basketball fan when I was a kid is going to Blazers games uh, and getting that uh, you know, that in-person taste. And I imagine that's true for uh, you know a, a large percentage of basketball fans everywhere. It's true for me, for sure. What was your first game, Michael? I don't remember if it. I, I don't think this was my first game because my first game was at the Boston Garden before they uh, before they tore it down, the original one. And so I have vague memories of that because it was when I was so young. Um, but the first game I remember attending was, I believe it was in 96, and it was right around Halloween. It might have been the home opener for the Celtics at the Fleet Center, which is what it was called back then, uh, against the Chicago Bulls. And I dressed up like Dennis Rodman. I dyed my hair. I had a Bulls <laughs> jacket. Uh, <laughs> it, was, wow. it was either, yeah, it was either you go trick or treating. You an hour into the podcast. Incredible. What a nugget. So yeah. how did people respond to you, Michael? Were they a little nervous on your behalf or were they into it? I was an extremely young child, and the Celtics did not, like, this was just really dark times for the Celtics, like Sherman, Douglas, Tony Delk, like, the, the players on the roster were just, you know, not great, so it, I think people understood me gravitating towards the Bulls, uh, and, you know, I had my Bulls starter jacket, it was just a whole a whole thing, but I, I wasn't allowed to go trick-or-treating that year, because I think it was, I, I want to say it was Halloween night, I mean, I'm sure listeners can double-check and figure that out, but that was just, like, it was an awesome experience, I gotta say, seeing Jordan in person, like, I've loved the NBA ever since. I can tell you an awesome experience is podcasting with The Worm 2.0. It's fantastic out here, Michael. Thanks so much. <laughs> we, we've reached the end of another incredible episode. Everyone, make sure you're tuning into that Zion game on Wednesday night because we will be back to talk about it uh, in a big-time way later this week. And we'll also run through your analysis of our 2020 NBA All-Star picks uh, on that episode. There's a lot going on, Michael. We should probably dig into the Houston Rockets, uh, maybe the Milwaukee Bucks recent developments, uh, and a few other contender check-ins. I imagine we're going to uh, you know, get that on our plate, too, uh, later this week. Uh, until then, guys, you can support us by going to Apple Podcasts and searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say Rate and Review. 
tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. As I mentioned earlier, email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And if you want to encourage Michael to maybe, you know, post a few pictures of his Dennis Rodman outfit on the internet for all of our amusement, feel free to do that too. I bet he's, uh, I bet we can manipulate him into uh, sharing some just incredible uh, photographic memories. He is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. I'm on Twitter at Ben Golliver. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.